question. So, yeah, thank you very much for the introduction, John, and, and for the opportunity to uh, come and present um, on what is a, a, a fairly wide subject, and I think it's not all just about, you know, the circular economy is not recycling the heat, it's about, you know, systems to, uh, you know, make better use of resources. And, and whilst my presentation will fundamentally touch on the recycling element, uh, I think we don't want to play the, the, the opportunity for reuse, which we'll sort of touch on. Um, yeah, I, I co-founded a scheme called Simply Cups in 2014, and I've met a number of people in this room uh, through that. But, but quite rightly, I don't particularly, I'm trying to get away from talking about cups, I've done nothing for the last five years. Um, and the reality is, is that, that when I founded Simply Cups, I was never, I never set out to solve the cup problem. Um, Cups just represented an opportunity to change systems. So what I want to do is see, slice this in cups as well. What I want to do is talk about uh, is dial it back a bit because prior to uh, forming my own business, Co-Create, I worked for uh, a business called uh, Closed Loop, and Closed Loop were one of the early pioneers of uh, food-grade plastics recycling uh, globally. In, uh, globally and in the UK. Um, and what, what I'm going to do is really just share my, my experiences uh, and challenges from uh, that scenario and talk about some of the pitfalls in, in moving on the status quo uh, in terms of the circular economy uh, and, and then kind of how we can learn from those lessons uh, and move forward and where I think we're going uh, from that side of things. So this is kind of, again, my, my last 10 years, where we've kind of uh, come from and, uh, and I just wanted to share that today. So if those of you don't know uh, Closed Loop, um, Closed Loop Recycling um, built the world's first food grade uh, PET and HDPE recycling facility uh, in Dagenham uh, that went live in 2008. It was actually formed as part of the, uh, the London Olympics Big Book, as part of the Legacy Now program in the area. Um, and that was really how it started. But the rationale behind it was um, uh, with an Australian parent company, uh, working with the ability to do food grade bottle to bottle recycling in Australia. Uh, when they came over to the UK in the early 2000s, they were quite surprised that at that time the UK bottle recycling rate was less than 3%, which was uh, pretty poor even for uh, 20 years ago. Um, and obviously, what they did is they, they had a model where they wanted to work in closed environments, recover material, and turn it back into uh, food and beverage packaging again. Now obviously that wasn't possible without infrastructure, which is what we'll come on to on the second side of things. So with a view of replicating the, uh, the model in Australia in the UK, they got together with RAP, um, I think London Remade at the time, uh, Ken Livingston I think backed it and built what was closed loop recycling, the world's first, as I said, PET and HDPE recycling facility. Um, that had significant capacity. I think in 2014 was doing about 80% of the UK's recycled HDPE, uh, and was really at the time lauded as a as a real beacon of of the growing circular economy in the UK. Um, and what it did, and, and I tell you, did it is 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 reality. It started stimulating the market to increase the bottle recycling rate, and and over the course of the next 10 years, it went from 3% to over 50%. Now, how did it do that? Um, there was an element of a build it and they will come mentality, but the reality is from a system, you've got to create demand. There's no point in recycling material if you haven't got anything to do with it and you don't create sufficient value. And how this happened was really through uh, 
predominantly the voluntary agreement are what was the milk road map, that's obviously the dairy road map, in which there was a commitment from uh, those on the screen to incorporate the use of locally derived recycled HDPE uh, back into their products on a sliding scale increasing to 2020. Um, and that was one of the, the commitments of the dairy roadmap and obviously something that everyone signed up to. The other uh, demand was uh, Marks and Spencers, who as part of Plan A at the time were rationalising all their food to go products back into PET. Uh, and obviously they, what they did is they set a, a benchmark of a minimum of 35% recycled content back in their food to go packaging. Now, both of those things created demand because if you wanted to sell to M&S or you wanted to sell to the dairy industry, you needed material. That meant that we got 18 million pounds worth of investment to build the facility. We could then go to a waste contractor and said, instead of burning it, we'll buy it off you. And conversely, they could go back to their customers and say, put it in this bin, it's half the price of putting it in that bin. So by creating demand, we pulled through material and as I said, increased the bottle recycling rate and set a precedent that others followed. And what this was, this was a really first time, and I remember meetings, you know, seven, eight years ago, when you, you truly had the whole supply chain in the room. You really were designing out problems from the front end. You had those people wanting to collect the material and those people designing the material. And that was very strong because it enabled you to, to make real changes that had real impact. Um, and because of that, we got invited into the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We contributed to the new Plastics Economy Report. And, and again, it was kind of, it was very positive. I really joined Closed Loop in, in 2010 because what we had the opportunity to do was turn a, a bottle back into a product. And that might not be a bottle, that might be a pot, tub, tray, sandwich wrapper, whatever. And I was saying, okay, well this is great, we can turn a bottle back into a product. So we're reducing you know, the amount of virgin material being used. But if we turn a bottle back into a sandwich wrap, how do we turn that into a sandwich wrap? How do we turn that back into a bottle? How do we turn that? And that was the challenge that I was set with. Um, and, and, and really there's a number of technical issues uh, around that, um, but fundamentally we started, we started trying to build volumes. We, we worked on, you know, which now seems quite common, we worked on putting products to market that had locally sourced recycled content. We started putting in closed systems where we could get the material back. Uh, one of the ones being working with, uh, with Arsenal Football Club where we tested the fact that we could put a cup in, get it back and work out the technical issues of putting it back through. So, what happened? Because obviously off the back of this, you would think that we move forward in, and in the era we're in at the moment, that, that this is highly relevant. Unfortunately, times were, were much different, even five years ago, probably even two years ago. Uh, and the reality is, is there were many financial challenges. One of them being that um, whilst the, the, the Far East was sucking in a lot of low-valued material, it was always su also sucking in very high quality material as well and paying an increasing rate. And whatever may be said or not, it was cheaper to export than it was to keep it in its own country. And so we needed government support to try and help us recycle locally. Again, which kind of seems bizarre now, but was the case back then. Because obviously the markets towards the Far East were, were rapidly increasing. We also had the issue of how do we get people to buy recycled content because everyone was predominantly driven by price and didn't want to pay any more. And the only way that they would take in the complications of recycled content to meet the obligations was pay, not paying the premium and actually paying less. And unfortunately what that meant was that um, the material was sold uh, below the price of Virgin uh, on a sliding scale. Now, the problem with that is, as you can see from this graph, as the buy price for HDPE started increasing being sucked into China. We had the oil crash in 2014 when the virgin prices crashed. 
and crashed to a point below which production of recycled HDP in the UK was sustainable. Now, we'll go back to this. Now, what, what happened was we went back to the government, these people, uh, and at the time, um, oh, there we go. Ah, there it is down there, sorry. And we basically said, okay, well, this is a short-term blip. Obviously, we know that these are the market forces. You know, we expect Virgin HDPE to uh, increase. And if you take a long-term view of the material value, ultimately, you might win or lose over, over a five, ten-year period. Unfortunately, the government offered no support. Um, businesses said, well, we'd rather buy Virgin for three months because the problem with voluntary agreements is those signing the voluntary agreements weren't the ones signing the, the checks at the business. And ultimately, what they saw was an improved three-month position, an improved six-month position, and reality was there was no support. Um, I think even at the time, again, which is ironic, that we called for, uh, to make up the difference, you need to put 0.1p on a two-litre milk bottle to save UK reprocessing, and, and no one was prepared to do it. You know, we move forward now, and we're talking about 25p on a on a coffee cup. So that's how the world has changed. And, and so basically, uh, closed loop, went into administration, got it bought out, went into administration again, and what we had was a, a great opportunity lost and a very harsh learning lesson for, for all those who were involved. Um, and coming back to Simply Cups, the reality I, I found in Simply Cups is because, I kid you not, for three years or four years from 2010 to 2014, I went to businesses, some businesses in this room, talking what we need to do with plastics, and no one was interested. It wasn't a problem. It was a problem we were shipping to the Far East and no one really wanted to attack it. And, and that was the issue, which, which leads us to back up here, and we don't need to dwell on this because I think everyone's aware of it, but we, we're kind of now in a perfect storm. China, quite rightly, has shut its doors on low-value commingled material. Um, yes, they still want good quality material like the rest of the world, but fundamentally, why should they take it? Um, if there's no value to us, why is there a value to them? And so what that meant is the world's outlet for low-quality material that was being sent for recycling and reported as being recycling by every corporate business suddenly fell through. At the same time, we had a great media storm as well because, and this is where the coffee cups comes in, Coffee cups, which became a beacon of, of consumerism, you can't, you know, 10 years ago you wouldn't see anyone with a coffee cup walking down the street. You go to London now and, and you can't see people without them. And so suddenly we had this, this, this beacon of the throwaway society put in the, light, in, in the limelight of the media and then the whole snowballing effect of that. And so what we did is we had, we had the, the global market shutting down, we had increased media attention and everyone was caught out. It happened very quickly uh, and no one had the chance to react. Um, but the problem is, in terms of reacting, this is not an easy problem to solve. We've underinvested in local collection and recycling infrastructure for 15 years. We can't just suddenly turn the tap and say, okay, well, let's, let's build it. Who's gonna pay for it is, is at the end of the day. And so the, the, the real problem here is whether we're talking about cups or plastics, this is a deep-rooted systemic problem that's taken a while to change and it will take some while now. And I think what, what, you know, one of the reasons why I created uh, Co-Create was really to say, actually, look, let's not worry about the materials too much. What we need is the systems. We need systemic change. Whether we're using product A or product B, if we can't collect it and get value from it, it doesn't really matter. And I think, I think what, what we've seen, the downside of increased awareness is the increase of the unintended consequences. Businesses wanting, you know, not feeling that they can't say something, having to go out there and say something and actually taking actions that have no net environmental benefit, 
but give them a short-term marketing burst so everyone can say, oh, they're great, they're obviously bothered about the issue. Okay, this is what we can do. Uh, and I think this is the point where we say, let's not start demonising materials. At the end of the day, you know, once we've got the systems, then let's talk about what the best outcome is. But the reality is this isn't necessarily a plastic problem, this is a systemic problem. Um, and everything will, will, have their, will have their thing. I spoke at an aviation conference the other day um, where someone was, was, was glorifying the first plastic-free flight. Well, unfortunately, people, you know, the, the real, you know, uh, consequence of aviation is jet fuel and burning fuel, not what people are eating out of on the plane. So we were going around the whole plastic-free flight, um, and it occurred that actually, well, plastics from planes, uh, you know, under international catering waste laws, are never going to find their way into the ocean. Um, you know, so that's not an issue. Um, so what we've done is we've moved to a load of other products that are heavier, and heavier products on the plane mean you means you burn more fuel. So we've placated the plastics-free brigade, but we've ended up burning shitloads more jet fuel and doing a lot more damage. And, and that kind of epitomised to me where, where we're kind of at is kind of, we, we, now is the time to sort of, is, is to calm down and put a, a, a real roadmap in place. And this is the issue I have around voluntary agreements. Um, not so much with the plastic packs, I think it's, it's definitely saying the right things. The question is, will it work? Um, because taking it from the dairy roadmap, when push comes to shove and people have to put their hands in their pocket, it's a very different outcome. Um, now, what I would say in terms of the, the voluntary agreements versus legislation is, I think the plastic pact will be saved by legislation because their target of 30% average recycled content is potentially going to come into law in 2022, three years earlier anyway. So um, I don't know who will claim that as a success or not, but that is pretty much what's going to happen. And that is exactly the right thing to do. How do we invest in collection systems and infrastructure? Well, we need everyone to, to step up and, and invest in it. And I think by putting a 30% a threshold for recycled content, that does that exactly. And we can't ignore the Brexit thing here as well, because as part of the waste strategy, we want to be a, a global leading nation. Um, well, I spoke to a global brand a big global brand yesterday where we were talking about, okay, well, in the short term, we need to scale from European production to, to build our first facility. Yeah, well, we don't want to build it in the UK because we don't know what's going to happen. So, you know, if we're trying to get scale and that's the first thing we need, we might need, you know, we want to work locally, but we might need to scale from a European level. You know, if we want to be world leaders, what do we have to do as a, as a country? Do we have to offer incentives? Do we have to say, right, we want to be the hub of this and get people to come here? I you know, I don't know, but I'm... I'm not going to talk about Brexit. Um, and so we come to the stalemate. And, and again, one of the key things of what, what we're trying to do at Co-Create is, is break the stalemate. Fundamentally, it's, this issue is all about collection and logistics. If you can get enough material at the right quality and at the right volume somewhere, people will invest, build a facility, and you will sell the output, even more so in plastics at the moment. If you've got the way of saying, we can get X amount of plastics, um, in to a facility and you can turn it into an output, ideally a food grade output, you, it's worth an absolute fortune. We, uh, back in 2014, we were struggling to sell recycled polymers at Virgin less 15%. If you're lucky now, you can probably buy recycled food grade polymers at Virgin plus 25%. Because even though the legislation comes in, hasn't come in, and people don't know how much it's going to cost, it's already stimulated the market because everyone's out there trying to buy it now. So the question is not how do we invest, it's how do we get the feedstock to invest, how do we get materials from A to B cheaper than the current format um, to do that. And when you're looking at um, things like food grade materials, 
obviously there's a lot more of a challenge when you move outside of PET because everyone uses PET bottles, so you've got a feedstock, but what about PP? So, what I kind of, I was, I was, it was getting late last night and I thought, right, okay, well I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put down some, some thoughts and, and, and shove them on a the page in terms of some of the things that I think, what, what is required to break the status quo. Um, personal views, very much open for debate and I'm not saying they're right. Um, I think we need to focus on systems, not materials. And I think we need to focus on standardisation, not dilution. The problem we've got at the moment is everyone's inventing the new, the new packaging format that's going to solve the world's problems, which probably doesn't exist. Um, what the waste industry needs to invest is scale. Now, all you're doing is diluting scale. The amount of people have gone through and said, aren't we really good? We're going plastic-free. We've moved from a HTPE milk bottle to a beverage carton. Aren't we brilliant? Well, no, because the beverage carton has still got 25% plastics in it. And then in the next sentence, they go, can you design a right recycling scheme to collect beverage cartons? And you go, well, there's one for HCP milk bottles that's probably more successful than any other one as well. Um, and so that's why we need an element of, of standardisation. And we need to be, for certain instances, we need to be material specific. We need to say, this is the material we're going to pin our hat on, rightly or wrongly, and build some volume around that. Um, in terms of infrastructure, it might need to be a lot more agile, smaller, flexible, more, more linked to um, maybe major urban areas rather than big facilities um, that obviously produce the best scale and the best environmental outcome but are not flexible for the materials it might need to do. Um, it needs to be brand-led and not service partner-led. And I think what we're seeing is we're seeing now a lot of brands get involved downstream and upstream in wanting to control this because ultimately it's a, it's a reputational issue and it's a commercial issue. If you haven't got your own source of food grade uh, uh, plastics, for example, you're going to be paying a hell of a lot on the marketplace through your supply chain. Um, I think what we want is, like, say, like John said, reuse not and recycling. It's, you, we've got to find out the context which works for both. Um, we want the proven best outcome, not the perceived best outcome. Um, we definitely want recycled, not recyclable, and recycled, not collecting for recycled, which I think we've, been, we've all been guilty of before. This is a tough one. We need collaboration with competition. How do we get brands to collaborate and standardise but still retain their own identity and their own differentiation in the marketplace? Not an easy one. Um, we need to understand that sustainability is good business it's, and, and not use it as a short-term marketing stunt. From what I've seen is people want to invest in um, and people want to work for purpose-driven business. I know Innocent being a B Corporation as well, people, people will gravitate to that. And so this is, this is about a new form of business. It's not about the perceived, okay, well, being green is a cost, it, very much so. And, and, and we, we, are, we are commercial. It's all about good business. Um, we need to understand what consumers do and not what consumers say they will do. If we go out and ask everyone, do you think climate change is a bad thing, you're going to struggle to find someone to say no. You do say to someone, okay, are you going to use a reusable coffee cup? Practically, I don't know. You know, throughout the whole coffee cup crisis, you know, the amount of issues there were about Starbucks and Costa. Well, I walked past a car at Starbucks and Costa. Didn't look any less busy to me because of it. In fact, I'd say that, that coffee sales on the high street have probably risen over the last five years. Um, and so we need to understand what the real customer issue is, not what the perceived issue is. Are customers really saying, we don't want to use plastic? Is that, is that what they're saying? I think what they're saying is, we don't want to be irresponsible and we don't want plastics thrown in the ocean. Now that's a two-day thing. If we go back to them and say, we've got a responsible solution, you know, and we, we recover plastics and we do something useful with it, do we think people will have an issue with that? Have, have we asked them? Um, we also need to be careful with materials because obviously if we're looking at you know, food grade materials, 
do we go with PET or PP? Now, food grade PP is a lot harder to, to achieve because you've got to get a bigger feedstock. Um, but, you know, if you make a, a pint cup out of PET and a pint cup out of PP, the PET cup weighs 14 grams and the PP cup weighs 7 grams. So, by default, is an unintended consequence that everyone moves to PET and then suddenly we're using more plastic, even though it's recycled content. And what's better from that? And I think what we need is, is, is legislation, not voluntary agreements. I can't see a rationale that they've worked before, and, and I don't have much confidence that they'll work moving forward. Um, because fundamentally, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to the finances being the first pillar of, of sustainability in, in any business. Um, and I think, agree. What, so so how, I, how I equate that is to tangible action and, and not discussion, which nicely leads us back to John in terms of, of his mantra, because I, I think I echo that wholeheartedly. So a very quick view of the last 10 years, you know, some of the achievements we've had, but obviously a number of failings, mainly around, you know, the fact is that, you know, someone's not going to come and build this infrastructure. Everyone's got to have a bit of skin in the game. How much skin in the game is probably where we go now, because someone's got to pay for this. Who's going to pay for it? Um, at the end of the day, it will probably be the consumer. Um, but now is the, really the time where we need brands to step up for the right reasons and start working together to build the scale to make this happen. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Stay there. Um, the answer of how many people are concerned about climate change is three quarters. Um, but as you say, it's one thing to be concerned about something and another to activate and to take action and to do something. I think we're all going in the right direction and, and you know, a lot of your examples there, Peter, are really good examples. I was at London Remade, by the way, uh, yeah. in the early yeah. days, so you remember yeah. that. Um, and you know, that, it's a very good example of, of things I think that probably happened unfortunately a year or three too early in yeah. some ways. Um, you know, some, some of the cup stuff as well, actually. You know, there's been some good initiatives in recent history, refills in supermarkets. Lots of reasons why these things don't work. Um, but normally, in my view, and I've written a 50,000 word essay on it, um, they're, they're often based on, um, you know, comparing it to something which is extremely convenient. And we're just going to have to accept that it changes. And one of the issues I think around cost, and you might have a view on this, your 0.01 pence um, is a good example of that. All that's doing, in my view, is internalising a relatively modest externality that we have to accept responsibility for and someone needs to pay for, um, but you need legislation behind it, I guess. So I don't know if you wanted to, you, know, you don't want to dwell, I'm sure, on 0.01 pence and how it brought down an industry, but you know, that I always cite that as a really good, clear example of a really modest increase in price having a really, you know, dramatic effect or being felt to be dramatic when it clearly isn't. Yeah, I, th I think, look, I think what government will always stand back and say, industry, can you work it out? Can you work together? Can you self-regulate? Um, from the experience, even with coffee cups on the high street, we've got Starbucks sending out a different message to Costa, an additional 5p, or we're paying £70 to a reprocessor who brings back a cup. I think, I think we've reached the point now where government has got to the point where they need to do something, but they've also said, well, you know what, businesses can't self-regulate. And so the reality is the, the, the most cost-effective thing for businesses would have been self-regulation, but I think everything's happened so fast that there's not going to be a chance. So now it's about how do we collaborate to mitigate the costs because the costs are coming. And so I think the costs will be set up here, but there's still a massive opportunity for industry 
to, to set the costs here by working together. And I think, I think, you know, despite the negatives, there's the positives. Now, you know, now that we had to have these debates and discussions, I agree, closed loop happened 10 years too early. You know, I went, I remember going back into the, two years ago or, or a year ago, went back into the government round table with, and, and Therese Kofi was bringing down what Michael Gove had said and, and she opened up the meeting with, what we need in this country is bottle to bottle recycling. And my heart sank and just said, really? Well, where were DEFRA, you know, three years ago? So like, I think it was too early. I think this is a cost of doing business now that every business understands. Can, can businesses step up and do it better? Because I think they can and there's an opportunity. And some businesses will and some businesses won't. I think I, I, I echo that. And I think also that my other observation from your um, presentation was around brand um, responsibility. And it's a brand problem. Um, so with that in mind, uh, are there any quick questions from the floor? Otherwise, we'll move on to the the next panel session. There we go. Um, we've got a microphone here, which is either on or I switch on. Try it. Hello. It's working. Peter, um, my, my, my question is about legislation, or at least about the role of government here. Um, I, I think um, you know, governments have three ways of uh, impacting things, um, either spending on public services, um, taxation or investment, usually infrastructure-driven investment, and I'm uh, I'm really fascinated that you know we can we can spend millions of pounds on putting fruit into schools. Uh, we can spend well, we can gain millions of pounds by taxing soft drinks. Uh, we can spend 76 billion pounds on a railway, uh, but we can't create a market. Uh, for probably the most, one of the most important environmental projects at the moment, as we are, after all, in a climate crisis. Um, I'd be interested in what you think the right answers of the role of government are. Uh, can I ask as well, who are you and where are you from? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm David Reid. I'm chairman of Prestige Purchasing. Thank you very much. Yeah, very good question. I don't know if I have a... a, a an answer other than to, to concur that if you, if you look at this, um, you know, what is, is the role for government? Should the government, you know, or how can the government incentivise this? The, effectively, the plastic tax will push the burden back to businesses as will extended producer responsibility um, and money will probably disappear to the Treasury, not DEFRA. And so where will that money go? Um, as with the plastic bags tax, you know, shouldn't the money that's regenerated from that, whilst it's great going to charitable causes, should that not go back to solving the, the real issue? And I think there you've got the issue between governments, between DEFRA and the, and the Treasury and, and, and the opportunity uh, to do that. I think there are opportunities. I mean, when we, as John will know, when we built the facility in Dagenham, that was part of a... a uh, uh, sustainable business park, that the area of land was set out with preferential terms. I think the reality is, is we've got to the point is that no entrepreneur now is going to build a recycling facility in the UK and why would you? And reality is what bank's going to invest in it? Um, so we need to do something. Is there a government responsibility in this? Yeah. I, I mean, this, this, the, the, what they've done is great because they've identified the problem they've said and they've said, they've always said, right, business, you've got to sort it out and you're going to do it under these terms without really understanding where the investment will go. Um, I think they should be doing more. You know, reality is, who should pay? Well, everyone should play in their respective marks. Right, we're going to run into the first panel now. So um, I think, Peter, you're going to hang around. Um, and we've got uh, Anna Schwab, I think I said that correctly, uh, from Sodexo, who's going to come up 
Uh, we've got Oliver Drury from Adnams. Ooh, maybe not. Uh, we've got Justin Turke from Bunzel. Justin's coming up, and uh, Peter. So that's great. Sorry, I must have still had Oliver on my list, and he's not here. No problem, no problem at all. Um, while we get, you're fine, Peter, you're fine, yeah. Um, while we um, just uh, get our panel sorted out, um, yeah, there's a hashtag up there. If you are tweeting, and please do, um, if you put footprint forum with it, with the hashtag, uh, that would be very helpful. Thank you very much. Um, you've got light in your eyes, but that's to make you focus and concentrate. Um, so um, the panel, this panel, is uh, looking at or thinking about the status quo of the so-called, it says here, loaded question, circular economy, uh, and thinking what it might look like operationally. So if I just ask each of the panellists to open out with a, a minute or, or so of um, just their initial thoughts, um, I think, Peter, we'll come to you first, if that's all right, because I think you've talked about, about some of these issues around an operational circular economy. Um, and I think particularly, I'm interested, panellists, on, on the reuse and recycling point and the whole point of if you're not buying recycled and making it from recycled, in my view, you're not recycling. So maybe we can use that as a bit of a spur to start things off. Peter. Yeah, well, I think there's no one size fits all. Everything's driven by context and what might be right in one context isn't in, in another context, which, which makes things um, very complicated uh, from, from that side of things. I think what we've got to quickly do is work out what's best to reuse and what's best to recycle. Because, you know, assuming that reuse is the most environmentally friendly, is it doesn't potentially give us the right outcome. I mean, you know, we took the whole dairy industry from a glass milk bottle to a single-use HDPE milk bottle because you had a, a means of collection. Um, and so I think in each context, we've got to work that out. We've got to work out what we can reuse, what we can eradicate, and then for what's left, how can we get that back into the supply chain? Operationally, this does come down to logistics, like I said at the end of the day. And I think what we'll see, what, what we need operationally to drive a circular economy is we need to focus on quality, not quantity. We focused on quantity because we've had the outlet to the Far East. You know, we can't support that anymore. So the days of collecting on a dust cart purely through waste contractors is going to change. I think we're going to see multiple channels, um, multiple collectors, because they'll be collecting something that has value, not something they just want to bury or burn. Uh, and so I think that's the, the biggest operational channel. I think, I think in terms of delivering the circular economy, everyone gets the circular economy and, and we're all good at saying the circular economy can save us X trillion pounds. How do we get there is what everyone wants to know and that's in small bite-sized chunks because you can't do it overnight because it is, is too big. Anna, pass the microphone. Thank Permission you. to speak microphone. <laughs> I'll try not to fall off the stool. As well. While sitting on it in high heels. So um, if I manage that, then, then it's a success. Um, so, um, when I think about circular economy, I think that waste is basically just a case of bad design. And if you think about reduce, reuse, recycle, it's actually a hierarchy. It's not choose which one you want to do. Um, so we have a global strategy, global CR strategy called Better Tomorrow 2025. Um, and through it, we have nine commitments and nine objectives to achieve by 2025. Um, and one of those corresponds with um, the SDG, UN SDG 12.3, which is around reducing food waste. So as a company that's um, kind of 50% of our business is still in catering, we see that that's where, where our biggest 
impact is. So the three kind of key themes that I would like to mention today in terms of what we're focusing on here in um, UK and Ireland. First one would be our program called Waste Watch powered by Lean Path. And Tom is going to talk about what Lean Path is um, in a little while much more eloquently than I can. But what I can tell you, it's a brilliant piece of kit that basically tells you what food you're wasting. So our chefs use it to look at um, in pre-production, post-production, um, what's going to waste? Does that mean we're ordering more than we need? Does it mean that we're giving our customers more food that they want to eat? That kind of a thing. So it's all about education and then looking at actually reducing so that we don't have to reuse or recycle. Um, the second big campaign um, is called uh, Wasteless Week, and it's something that we run throughout the business for one week a year, uh, which is, I would say, not enough, but it's kind of a starting point where we really work with our clients to understand, okay, where is your waste coming from, and what can we do to um, drive um, information, to drive knowledge within you know, it's either their employees or their end customers in terms of waste and then going back to, okay, well, what can we do about it? And then the final bit um, is around eliminating single-use plastics. And I know, you know, it's something that, that we're going to keep coming back to um, today, but we are trying to work with our clients as much as we can um, to see, okay, well, you know, we, we have difficult situations where we have people saying, okay, but, you know, if you're not doing a, um, a, a cup, a throwaway single-use cup, then, you know, how are your customers going to come back? What are you going to do? Well, you know, you have to be radical, I would say. Um, you know, start with, okay, let's, let's see if we can use China as much as we can. And then if someone says, well, you know, we don't have a dish, dishwashing facilities, okay, well, is that something that we can invest in? Because that's really where we want to get to, which is, you know, the reusing as opposed to recycling. And then, as a last option, we go with Simply Cups, not because it's, you know, the worst thing in the world, they're, they're brilliant, but, you know, it is, <laughs> it is a solution and it's a good solution that works for us. Yeah. Great, and Justin? Um, okay, it's quite difficult to follow those two, um, but I, just to give you my thoughts on the, uh, on the circular economy, um, I think the main thing that I am trying to get to grips with the circular economy and trying to understand is that it's very complex, um, and I think to um, just um, think that we can move very swiftly and very easily um, from a a path dependency and, and a linear model of the way that we uh, consume and use things um, is, is simply not possible. I think we need to really respect the fact that a lot of this comes down to understanding that human behavior drives a lot of this. And um, Pete mentioned Kate Raworth earlier. Um, she wrote a brilliant book um, called Donut Economics. But one of the, the main thrusts that she puts out about economics is a lot of it is guided by human behavior. And, and this idea of the rational actor or the all-knowing person who can make rational, logical decisions at the drop of a hat um, really does have to be rejected. Um, and I think we have to respect the fact that we need to look at the way consumers behave and the way people use these materials as much as we look at the way people things are produced or designed, um, although we have to do that as well. And we have to respect the fact that 
um, things will be thrown away in smaller volumes, in not necessarily the way that infrastructure is built and created. And I think we need to adapt to that and we need to be far more agile um, around that as well. And I, 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 I really support what um, Pete said earlier about the fact that sort of waste management is not going to be just a way of driving huge trucks around a city uh, in an orderly fashion. It's going to be a far more dynamic process in the future and it needs to be if we are going to start valuing the materials that we're producing and the materials we're using to create packaging particularly and to recapture them and to really understand the value uh, that's behind them. I think what's been really encouraging and, and, and I think where I've seen a change in, in the short time that I've been in this industry is that in meetings I'm going to now, more and more often there are more stakeholders in the room. So I went to a, a meeting the other day with a train operator uh, and we had the, the, uh, we had, we had the, um, the contract caterer, we had the train operator itself, we had uh, ourselves, the distributor, uh, but we also had um, the waste management um, company in there as well. And it meant that we could really understand what the pressures were and what we, from, from each sector, what we were trying to achieve and the fact that we might have to move a little bit closer together and understand what we were doing. We also had people there from Network Rail, so they owned the infrastructure around that. Now, of course, there are two major parts of that still missing, one of which was the consumer, which again, was anyone there being asked, do you want us to move away from it? Or would you rather, do you like the products that we're using? Would you rather a better way of managing those at the beginning or end of life? Um, and the other people we were missing were the people who owned the infrastructure. So circular economy, and I'll finish in a minute. Um, circular economy very much talks about design-led solutions, but you really need to understand where that design needs to start. So in the case of a train, the train is actually leased by a large manufacturer, which in itself is actually quite a circular principle, basically. Um, but in order to put up something as simple as signage, which helps people make the right decisions for the products they're using, can be up to a three or four year process because the people operating those trains don't own the infrastructure. So when we talk about design-led, where do we start designing and what do we look at? And I don't want that to sound negative, but it is, we have to respect that this is a complex uh, concept and, it, and it's really moving away from a huge amount of path dependency and existing behaviour. It's great news. The Southwestern Railways, when they turn up, cheap dig, um, will now refill your coffee cup. So, um, you know, that sort of design to fit down the aisle and be, you know, just perfect for you know, zero kind of hassle at the end other than emptying bins, um, they have understood that. And I think that's only a consequence of, of the coverage on TV. It's got nothing to do with it being, you know, cheaper. Uh, it's 10p cheaper for me to buy one, which is great. Um, it might be cheaper by two and a half pence for them to not give me a cup, which is great. But it's not been driven by that. It's been driven by pressure. Um, so I think, you know, I said people are a big problem. Uh, you're absolutely right. Where are people in the, where are we in that conversation? Trouble is, we've got 27 different opinions. Uh, again, we're not going to talk about Brexit. Um, but when we do have a government again, if we ever have a government again, um, I think there's some really big decisions that they're going to need to make to drive some of these changes that you're talking about. Are there any questions from the um, audience? I've got a few up my sleeve anyway, but um, we're really keen to get your questions into the, into the panel as well. One right over the back. You're going to get fit, Charlie. Thanks very much. Uh, my name is Lau Tambiak. I come from uh, the consultancy 
Equact. Um, my question is sort of around incentivizing. I think it's, it's very right to see that consumers or users of the packaging or the users of the food are sort of the people that you probably need to, to address in, in making sure that the circular economy is sort of actually that materials come back into the loop. So uh, my question is around sort of how do you incentivize the customers or the consumers or the chefs in this case to make sure that, that they're actually sort of going through perhaps sometimes the inconvenience that it is sometimes to instead of just chucking it in a random bin, making sure that it's recycled. So, so how do you make sure that, that people are incentivized? That's a great question. Uh, you've yeah. taken the microphone. No, no. I do, you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, purely because obviously we've, we've seen a lot of uh, activity on the high street around uh, coffee on the go and, you know, the metric of does a discount work or does a charge work. Um, so there's a couple of things here is, is neither work enough to really push reuse, I think, is, is the answer. I mean, we've had the people offer... 25p off a, a coffee, 50p. I, I don't think people who reuse reusable cups at this moment in time are those who are necessarily looking to save money. They're doing it because they're, they're passionate about it and they want to do it and they feel it's the right thing to do. I, I am, I'm going to interject there. 49p, okay. 49p in prep for a cup of filter coffee rather than 99p, which is cheap anyway, but 49p when you bring your own cup. So I love that. So why is reuse still only gone from 2% to 4% on the high street? My view, we're not, we're not trying hard enough, personally. The brands aren't well, taking it seriously enough. I mean, they do communicate it, and, it and, and it's written. I, 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 think, I think if you can make it more... Conv I, 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 I don't think people have an issue with using a reusable cup. I think it's the convenience factor, it's the washing, it's the carrying around. Uh, I think the... The, 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 cost the cost saving has been seen, whether it's Starbucks putting on 5p or Pret taking off 50p. Uh, the reality is that has, it, it hasn't worked for the masses. It, it has worked for some people, undoubtedly. And look, we, we have to generalise. But even if we said that, um, you know, I, I think from, from the whole cost side of things, reuse has gone up there from 2% to 7%. But there's still 93% of people using disposable cups. So... You know, and, and the reality is around the whole deposit. I mean, we live in a very privileged society where, you know, what, what is the right level of, of incentivization around deposit return, you know? Is, are we just too affluent that 25p, 50p, people will just pay it because, I mean, I still go into the supermarket and plastic bags is exactly the right thing to do. But it's now gone up from 5p to 20p in my local store and the amount of people who go, oh yeah, here you go, here's the 20p. And it's kind of like, we don't even probably really think Yeah, it's that. an idiot tax and that's fine, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Justin, you were gonna, when I blame brands, you were gonna interject, so um, use the mic if you don't I, mind. I think just returning to some principles of the circular economy, I think circular economy is, is a lot of it is about ownership. Um, so where does ownership sit? Um, and um, I mean, I, I don't want to own a coffee cup particularly. I don't want to own a reusable coffee cup. Um, but if I was given the opportunity to uh, to use a reusable coffee cup or, or pay a subscription to a reusable coffee cup that I can then drop off and then bring back. I, I, think, I think it's very much around, um, we talk about incentives and things like that. I think if people are given the opportunity to do the right thing, then they'll take that. I don't think they necessarily need payment to do that. I, I don't think, I think the incentive in itself, I mean, the reason why people use disposable food packaging and disposable coffee cups is because it's incredibly convenient and they do their job very, very well. So you, you need to replace that with something that does it just as well or better. And I think that's, that's very important. But this, 
this whole idea of, of, of just passing ownership down the line, that's not what circular economy is about. It's about, it's about retaining ownership of the value of the item that you're holding. And that's actually very difficult with disposables. So if you read textbooks on circular economy, they generally talk about washing machines or electric cars uh, and things like that. Talking to them about a, uh, a little thing that holds some ketchup is actually um, probably quite annoying for them and quite difficult as well. So. Yeah, go on. Um, the circular economy and doing it in bite-sized chunks. So exactly what Justin says there. Uh, a city-wide scheme where every coffee shop has a consistent cup that you can pick up in one and put in the other. Great circular economy. But to get there, we've got to get Costa, Starbucks, Pret, everyone to do the same thing, to have a non-branded cup to do this. So that's where it's got to be in bite-sized chunks. And perhaps those systemic leaps are just too big. And it's great talking about them, but how achievable are they? And that's, I think, a great example of that. And Anna? And just whether you're wondering specifically if it's an incentive or a penalty, it's a penalty. So there was a research this morning, actually, that I read um, by, done by um, a university, I think it's somewhere in Scotland, and they said that the penalty works better than the incentive. Uh, and choice editing as well <laughs> is the other one for me. Um, if you're given a convenient alternative uh, and it's carefree, then I might even choose it. Um, but uh, if you're given, you know, a way of doing something because it's better, 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 uh, then a lot of people will go, fair enough. You know, we've ended up where we've ended up because we've been allowed to end up there. Um, and I think there's a bit of reverse engineering as much as anything else necessary on some of this convenience, personally. Someone like Boston Tea Party coming out and making a bold statement, we're not going to sell disposable cups and, and they lost £250,000. Which they <coughs> knew they would. And they planned to do it because they took a stand on a principle. But, so to be to be heralded. But only a small part of their percentage business is take up. So you did that to a major national chain, and that that X percent of their business would might be half their business or mm. And so it's just you know, and and so I get this, but it's it's <coughs> great doing that. But there, there's circumstances around it, and would yep. that work for business? But they just wouldn't implement it. I think uh, we'll take another. Uh, any other points to come in there? Yeah, sorry. Use the microphone. Um, you talked about value as well. Um, so, I mean, the Boston Tea Party example is uh, a privately owned company, I think. But as soon as you get into shareholders and things like that, that's when it starts getting scary for decision makers. And I think what you said earlier, again, about um, sustainability being a, a, an important, not an important part of the value that a company or a business brings. It is, and that, we're seeing that, and that is becoming more and more important. But then those decisions can be made based on um, sustainable um, uh, decision-making processes that will continue to add value into the business. But it, it is, again, that's a big shift in the way people are viewing business and how it works. I think the other thing that Peter said uh, earlier was to do with, um, you know, legislation. Um, and, I, you know, no business is going to voluntarily cut its business in half overnight. They're just not going to do that. Um, which is why kind of sometimes these discussions feel a bit circular in their own right, where we're kind of just trying to defend the status quo and make it look and, and sound a little bit different rather than actually get to grips with what needs to change. Um, so I think we'll park that issue there because we'll all fall out otherwise. Uh, any other questions from the floor? One at the front here. Microphone coming. Who are you and why are you here? Hello, um, I'm Sarah Turner from SWR Newstyle. Um, convenience has um, been mentioned a few times by various people. Any ideas from the panels of how to make circular initiatives more convenient for consumers? Yeah, I was just having a conversation yesterday about a deposit return scheme at a university. Um, and someone was saying, well, okay, fine, if I'm 
I'm not taking a bag every day, so I can't really bring my own cup every day. So how are you actually going to make this easier for me? Um, and so maybe a solution is um, tokens. So maybe you you know, buy a reusable cup, you bring it when you're done, you get a token, and then next time you come, you get given a new cup. We wash it for you, we, you know, clean it, and it's ready for you to reuse. It sounds like a deposit to me. That might work quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a deposit. Used to work when I was a kid. I made a, a lot of money out of deposits on bottles. I'm sure there's people who were poor enough, like me, when I was a kid, uh, who were quite prepared to go around a building site as I was allowed to when I was a kid. I'm sure. Man nodding there. Um, uh, picking up Corona bottles with 10p deposits on them and going back to the sweet shop. <coughs> kept me in business, or kept the sweet shop in business, actually, to be fair. There was another question over there. Comment, microphone's coming. Charlie's getting fitter and fitter. Hello, everyone. Ivan D'Ambrosio is here. Um, I was in uh, Germany, in Berlin, for a couple of months. And I don't know if you are familiar with the situation there. You go to a supermarket, you buy a can of Coke or anything, and uh, the price will be, for example, just to say a number, one euro. But actually, when you go and pay, you pay one euro 25. Um, because they already take a deposit. So if you want to have those 25 uh, pence, um, 25 cents back, you have to go back to the supermarket and return it and use in that supermarket the voucher that they are going to give you. This is absolutely punishment. So essentially, I, I see the price, one euro, but actually I'm paying one euro 25. But it really works. Um, everything that is can, everything that is a plastic bottle, they charge 25 um, cents of a euro, which is, yep. by the way, quite a lot of money. So let's have a quick conversation about that then. So I'm going to move to Scotland because I like the idea of deposits. I'm not sure about, you know, all the other referendums they're going to have, but I like the idea of deposits. Discuss. I'm in. There you go. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> the two years ago, there would have been a massive argument about deposits. And, you know, this is interesting. Carry on. I think I'll come back to the point. It's... It, it's there's a context and there's a layer for it. Is there a role for deposits? Yes, there is. Is it blanket the answer? No, it's not. Um, I, I think from, from that side of things. Um, the, issue, the issue is is that, again, if we go back to the consumer and look at the consumer, we're ultimately going to have Scotland that potentially is going to go for a deposit return scheme, Wales that isn't, and England that will be somewhere in between. So the problem is, is what is the scheme and is it going to be uniform? And Ireland, there's a customs Ireland, border anyway yeah, now, so it doesn't matter, yeah. So I think that, that, that's the problem. I mean, it, this, this always comes back to, to bottles. And the reality is why, why closed loop recycling built and worked in 2008 is because actually the curbside collection scheme was a very easy way for people to put their bottles into their curbside scheme. And if that recovers over 70% of plastic bottles, I, I would argue that plastic bottles aren't recovered are the ones that uh, go into spaces where there's not a bin that's going to end up down a recycling route because every bottle that goes in and gets to a facility will be collected. Now why is that? It's because local authorities have got no money and every time they put a bin out on the street it costs them more money than not putting a bin out on the street. So the reality is it's cheaper for them to take the bins off the street and guess what we can't capture the plastic bottles. We've also got that curbside scheme so I, I, think, I think in certain areas it, it does work. Um, I think, again, it, what it does is it builds another collection scheme of, you know, 
more flexible vehicles going to smaller collection points and changing it from the dust cart. So in that way, it's, it, it's very good because it, it will deliver that side of things. So I think the jury's out. What, what's the cost benefit? Um, you know, how will it work? I think we're, we're still early. So I think, I think there's a role for it, but it's, it's, it doesn't solve everything. Great, Justin. Yeah, I think um, DRS uh, is fine in principle as long as it achieves the aims basically of uh, reducing littering, it, it creates uh, better recycling um, streams um, and it segregates more. Um, I'd be concerned about uh, supermarkets giving out vouchers because I, I think we have to be very careful about um, pulling people into large uh, retail outlets like supermarkets and away from the smaller operators and things like that. So that would be my one kind of caveat is you have to continue to support the high street and small independents. Yeah, agree. And I've, in my 50,000 word really interesting essay array on this, um, we cover that point, um, which is about an opportunity uh, around refill models as well as deposits for smaller um, operators, smaller businesses to really get uh, a foothold in a local market by delivering a much better level of service which comes with some of those models. And the other one being that most um, waste operators will probably go out of business if they don't adapt and change and completely revolutionise the logistics orientation of what they do, which probably means different vehicles, different services, different partnerships, different contracts. So I think, yeah, really, really good points, which we'll, we'll probably pick up on the second panel, actually. So at that point, I'd like you to thank the panel in the usual way. <laughs> and ask them very carefully to uh, dismount from <laughs> the chairs. Um, next up, we've got Katie Leggett from, uh, from Innocent, our host today. And Katie's going to um, talk about, well, talk about Innocent, um, the sustainability manager's perspective of Innocent. Hello everyone. Um, yeah, I am Katie from the sustainability team here at Innocent. And my role, a lot of what my role is, is around communicating sustainability. So whether that's internally here at the company or externally um, about how we communicate some of those more challenging issues, like for example, plastic use. Um, so I'm gonna talk to you today about what we think about the circular economy here at Innocent and how we're going about being involved in one ourselves. Um, but actually, first, I wanted to start by talking a bit about us as a business. Um, really interesting to hear uh, purpose and business purpose come up on that previous panel, because that's definitely something that's important to us here at Innocent. Um, we've always been driven by this purpose, which is um, making natural and delicious healthy food and drink. Um, and we do that in lots of ways, but mostly by following these values, which you'll also notice are, well, you can't see them, but they're behind here. You'll just have to take my word for it. They're also in all of our toilets, um, in anywhere where you might sit for um, any period of time. Um, they are there so that we are reminded wherever we go around the office that this is the way our business runs. Now, values are an interesting thing for businesses because quite often they're something that sit on a wall, but maybe not something that really mean anything. Now, here at Innocent, we both hire based on these values so everyone here that works here has been hired against those um, but they are also something that we make business decisions by and so actually for me in the sustainability team at Innocent we have responsible right in the center there of our um, values and that makes it really easy for us to make business decisions based on being a responsible business. It also means that I guess maybe uh, obviously, it's also written on the wall up there. Um, last year, we became a B Corp, um, joining that kind of global group uh, of businesses that care about using business as a force for good. Um, just a quick straw poll, who here, I'm assuming quite a few of you have, but who here has heard of the B Corp movement? 
Okay, great, so most of you. Um, for those of you who haven't, um, B Corps are a global movement of businesses that are committed to doing business differently. Um, you change your articles of association so that the ambitions of your company move away from creating value for your shareholders towards creating broader value um, in all of its forms to your stakeholders. So that's anyone that has a stake in your business from your employees all the way through to the people that are working in your supply chains. So for us, being a B Corp is really something that's just come out of the fact that we've always cared about doing business differently and leaving things better than we find them. And just one part of being a B Corp is sustainability. So that's where our sustainability strategy comes in. I'm not going to talk to you through the whole thing today. There's loads of words on this slide. You don't really need to take anything in other than the fact that we really care about sustainability. There's lots of information. Um, also, for those of you who work in sustainability, obviously, there are three pillars because sustainability experts love three pillar strategies. Um, the thing I want to talk to you about today, though, is really the, the far side um, about leading in the use of plant-based and recycled materials in our bottles. So then that brings me nicely onto the context of the circular economy and why we think it's important. Um, now for us, actually, everything that we do on sustainability really centers around the fact that climate change is the most important issue facing us as a kind of global population. It's the one that is the most threatening and obviously as we see and hear it's the one that it feels like the most um it's the most urgent um so where we are now obviously none of this will be new to anyone sitting in the room but we're about here today about one degree um our current global pledges and our targets and our policies take us to somewhere between two and a half to four and a half degrees warming, um, depending on where you look in terms of the estimates. Um, and you can't see, I'll just tell you what it says. Um, we need to be at net zero emissions by 2050 in order to stay at this one degree area. So really, this is the most pressing thing that we need to focus on as a business. Um, and whilst we think that plastic pollution is obviously not something that we want to happen, um, we also think that we need to be solving the issue of climate change. Now, um, we've done a lot of research and we've been doing a lot of work on this and that's why we're still in plastic. It's because actually for us, working on a circular economy plas for plastic is the best issue in terms of the best way to solve the issue of both climate change and plastics pollution. It allows us to capture the material, but it doesn't involve us moving into a heavier and more uh, climate intensive material like glass, for example. So that brings me on to talk about the circular economy. So we've got three main things I'm going to talk you through that are helping us to get towards our circular economy. And the first is this. So I think this has actually been really talked about already today, but actually in order to build a circular economy, we need to have more value in the materials that we have. We need to encourage a less throwaway culture. Um, and we also need to build a market for recyclable materials. So we've been using food grade recycled PET in our bottles since 2003. So our journey on plastic started a long time before we ever really had this plastics crisis that everyone started talking about in the last couple of years um, as a result of the lovely Mr. Attenborough. Um, back in 2002, we started thinking about climate change, um, thinking about what that means for us as a business and how do we get those materials that we had in the bottles back into the bottles again and could we reuse them? How can we do that? And we landed on recycled plastic. Now, it's been a bit of a journey up and down in terms of the recycled content that we've used um, and actually I'll also talk a bit later about our brighter bottle which is um, a mixture of both recycled and plant-based plastics 
Um, but where we are aiming to get to is 100% renewable. So by 2022, we want a bottle which is 100% renewable. And I'll talk a bit about why it's not 100% recyclable in a sec. Um, sorry, not one, it definitely needs to be 100% recyclable. Not 100% recycled content. Um, so there are three main areas that are going to help us on this valuing plastics more. So the first is that we need to have a better plastic footprint. So that involves the design of the bottles themselves. Um, so every bottle that we're designing is being designed to be recycled at the end of its life so that it's being made into that circular system. Um, as has already been mentioned today, you can't build a circular economy without thinking about it at the design phase. So you need to have that, that inbuilt design phase. The second is, obviously, with any circular economy, you need to make sure you're closing the loop with your drinkers. Um, the, any, I'm sure all of you know that a circular economy is only as good as the worst part of the circular system. So we need to make sure that we're not missing out on that drinker phase as well. Um, and then also our innovative solutions. So that's looking into things like, my, could we use reuse, model, reuse models for us? Is there another material that isn't currently available on the market? Could we do refillables in store, for example? There's lots and lots of different examples that might change here. Um, and it, it's working within the current system, but also what is there out there that isn't currently available. So that's the first point about valuing plastics more. The second one on here is making sure that all of our plastic is fully recyclable, as I said. Um, and that's where we have created this idea of our circular economy. So as you'll all know, um, we obviously make bottles that um, go into shops, then, that then sit on shelves, that find a home with our drinkers. And this is where we have the first kind of challenge. Um, so obviously, we hope they're popped in the recycling, but in some cases, they might not be. So there's a big piece of work for us as a consumer-facing brand to actually engage our drinkers in the recycling system as well. Um, they're then obviously broken down in recycling, which goes through various stages, and then put back into preforms, which can then be recycled again. Now, the main thing that we're focusing on here in terms of making sure our bottles are recyclable is engaging with our drinkers. So there's a number of ways that we do this. Um, on the back of packs of our products, not actually the products that you've got in front of you, but on some of the products that we have, we have recycling messaging on our back of pack. Also doing a big campaign later this year for the first time in this borough. We've been involved in lots of different DRS trials. Um, and again, interesting that the last panel were talking about DRS. We think that deposit return schemes for us as a business and for the space in which we sit are almost definitely, as long as they are well designed, a really great idea. Because actually they allow you to have a single stream of recycling which still give you really great quality recycled output at the back. And actually for us and for a lot of other businesses that are in clear PET bottles, like the ones you've got in front of you, you want to have really great quality plastic because otherwise you're not going to get the clarity of plastic that you need to make sure that the drinkers actually like the look of what they're drinking. And at the end of the day, if your drinkers don't like what they're looking at, they're not going to buy your products. So it's always going to be a bit of a balance. And then the last one is about this designing a 100% renewable bottle. So this is our brighter bottle, which is currently in all of our core smoothies. And the reason why we've invested in putting plant material in our bottles and not just recycled content is because there are only so many times that plastic can be recycled in this circular economy loop. Um, so PET or uh, many other different types of plastic. It depends on the plastic, but the exact number. But let's say somewhere between five and 10 times it can be recycled until it has to be 
downcycled into something of a lesser quality. So what we want to be able to have is bottles being turned back into bottles. But in order to do that, you need to have some kind of virgin input into your plastic. So that's why we're working on plant-based material, so that by the time that we get to 2022, the idea would be it would be maximum 50% recycled content to maintain that quality, and the rest of it would be no, no oil-based plastic, so instead would be plant-based plastic. Does that... Makes sense, is that clear? Um, so that's why we have this ambition to also include plant-based plastic. Um, I think the main thing to say here is that without all of those different stages, you'll never have a truly circular economy. Um, as I say, you need to make sure that all of your plastics are fully recyclable. And we are really, the reason that we're investing in, in this is we see quite a lot of other drinks brands moving into 100% recycled content bottles. That's obviously great, and it's a really, really good step forward. It's something that we haven't seen the industry talking about a lot. But if that's going to de-downgrade the system if everyone did it, then it's not a systemic level su sustainable solution. Does, is that, does that make sense? So I think what we're aiming for is something that not only works for us now, but will work for everyone if everyone were to move to that same solution. So that is our circular economy ambition in a nutshell. Um, I think we've got time for me to answer some questions. I know we're running a little bit behind. But yeah, we have, yeah. Um, so uh, thank you very much no for that, Katie. Um, any questions from the floor uh, about Innocent and their bottles? I think it's really interesting, you know, the points you were raising there. Just one question I had, actually. The cap's really black, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, is that okay? I know there's issues with black plastics and so on. Yeah, so um, the good thing about any cap on any bottle is that as long as it's attached to the bottle, it will get selected and recycled along with the bottle um, in something called mixed cap recycling as, as a general rule. So here in the UK, as long as you're bottle cap is on your bottle that's the government guidelines obviously you have to check with your local recycling scheme and all of that kind of <laughs> stuff um, again that's another challenge here in the UK the guidelines are slightly different to what it might be elsewhere um, but the black plastic isn't a problem because it's just the cap if it were our whole bottle it would present a problem because it wouldn't be able to be scanned but my, my, my joke I often use is there are 400 local authorities and 500 ways of doing the same thing. Um, but actually, there are only 120 different ways of doing the same thing. So uh, we're making real progress there. Um, but no, you, you're right to point that out. Um, so questions from, from, the, from the floor. One at the back again. I think you've been before, haven't you? <laughs> Hope I'm allowed to an ask another question then. Um, so basically, again, my name is Lao Tambi. I come from Equact. Um, I think it's really interesting, uh, sort of the bioplastics, and I think it's right spotted that we need some additional feed-in to make sure that you have a continuous loop. Um, so my question is around, because you brought up climate change, there are other issues like, for example, making sure there's enough food for people and so on. How do you compare, like, how do you weigh the different aspects, like climate change versus plastic issues versus making sure there's food and land use and so on? How do you compare the different aspects and make sure you, you sort of make the right choice, and if I should put it that way? Well, the good news is that there's not a right answer to that. So also, that's why I still have a job, I suppose. Um, so I would say as sustainability managers, we have to take a bit of a kind of holistic view on all of the issues facing our company, um, as, as that's what I do as my job, helping the company. Um, but looking at a global scale, which is the ones that we need to have the biggest impact on because they are 
going to have not only the biggest impact on our business and therefore our livelihoods, but also the livelihoods of the people that are working and impacted in our supply chain. And I would say there's not really an argument out there that says that climate change isn't the one that would have the biggest impact currently. Um, <coughs> I agree, food, food sourcing and sustainable agriculture is a big part of our strategy that I haven't spoken about today. And if anyone wants to talk to me about sustainable agriculture and what we're doing on that, I would love to talk about it. Um, because actually making sure that people have the livelihoods that they and are generating enough income from their farms is a big thing that we work on. Um, but it, as, as a kind of overarching global scale issues, I think we have to take try and take at least that macro view of where we see the biggest impact on supply chains. And I think even now, some of the ingredients that we buy, we are seeing the impact of climate change happening in, in our supply chains. So we have taken the view that that's the biggest issue. I suppose on the, on the flip side of that, you might have a, a domestic UK supply of lime trees at some point <laughs> in the next few years, but that would be an unintended consequence, wouldn't it? Yeah. So you were gonna say something else? Uh, no. No. Uh, yeah, no. Another question. Hi, uh, Pete Statham from Carlsberg. Um, I wondered, you're obviously putting a lot of work into um, more recycled sources for the plastic bottles. I wonder why you're not moving to something that's kind of infinitely recyclable like a can. Uh, great question. So that is a consumer-led issue. Issue, not the right word. But um, our drinkers are demanding to be able to see the product, I suppose. And when I say are demanding, um, they aren't standing outside with a picket fence and saying they want to see it, but we buy with our wallets, right? So um, we know that our drinkers from their purchasing drivers want to buy products that they can see, especially in, in our specific industry, so in, in juice and smoothies, they want to be able to see the product. Um, we could move into can. Uh, the other issue with the use of cans, we do have a couple of products in cans, by the way, um, but more uh, things that you would drink as kind of refreshment. So um, our bubbles, which are, are kind of in the kind of can area, but in still refrigerated. Um, they're not resealable. And actually, as a general rule, with a smoothie or a juice, you won't drink it all in one go. Whereas with a refreshment beverage, you might drink it all in one go and that would be fine. Um, so as an on-the-go offering, it would be very difficult for us to move to cans. Um, I'm not ruling it out. There's definitely still that part of our packaging strategy where we say, like, what's the innovative solution? Um, but I think the thing for us at the moment is we know that we can make plastic possibly you know, it's, it's physically possible to make plastic into a fully <coughs> renewable material. We're just not there yet because the system doesn't currently support it. So that's what we're aiming for first. Yeah, we've sort of, I suppose, got chunks of this circle happening now. So and one of the projects I've been working on is with uh, Amy and Charpak and uh, Waitrose. So they've moved, Waitrose have moved to a PET pot for those lovely chocolate brownie bites that you might occasionally buy every day, every week. Um, and um, so they're now made out of a PET with a different lid, so it's sort of twist lock lid, so there's a whole bunch of thinking gone into the design of the product and the material it's made from, and that's being made from all of the PET that's collected in Cambridgeshire, in Cambridgeshire. So the manufacturer of that pot, or those thousands and thousands of pots, are also based in Cambridgeshire. So it sort, of, it sort of does a bit of a three quarters of a circle and then pings off around the country again and gets made into other stuff and might well leave the country or get made into something completely different. But you've got these sort of examples of bits of circles now starting to 
to take shape, which I quite like. And I think the, the thing I would say to that is that's the part of actually you need to invest in the in the product and in the system itself. Um, and sometimes I think businesses can feel a little bit that they're out of they're out of that loop and actually businesses have a real responsibility to buy into the system and to say we want to have this product and therefore we will create a market for it because it, it won't be delivered to you for free um, and also the investment in that level of infrastructure is really expensive so we need to try and bring the cost and economies of scale down to make it affordable for businesses to use it. Yep, good point. Uh, another couple of questions. Three, one, two, three. Yeah. Hi, uh, my, my name is um, Andrew. I work as a like, freelance designer with special kind of specialty in um, sustainability. And wouldn't it be better if your if the the cap and the bottle were actually just the same material to make it easier to collectible, recoverable, recyclable? Take away the paper bit to it and so forth like that. So it's, it becomes a singular material product that thus makes it recoverable easily recoverable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I totally couldn't agree more um, with my sustainability hat on. Um, in terms of the technical side of the bottle, it's not possible to make those caps out of the material that we make our bottles out of at the moment. And the tamper seals are actually for health and safety. So that's the reason that they have paper on them. Um, there are lots of design options that we're looking into to try and make sure that we can do that because I think you're totally right. One of the things that we haven't really been, um, I guess, so clued into is making sure that those caps are completely, you know, recyclable with the bottle. But they, they will still be recycled. It will just be in a different recycling stream. They'll be separated, for example. Yep, another question. Hello, my name is Daisy. I work for a business-to-business -business, uh, manufacturing company. We're also looking into plant-based plastics as a solution because we can't really eliminate plastic from our manufacturing methods. Um, however, what are the problems that you foresee with plant-based plastics? Because I understand it makes it more tricky in the recycling process. Yeah, so the plant-based plastic that we use is, um, is still PET. So it comes out exactly the same, so it doesn't impact the recycling stream at all. Um, where the issue with plant-based plastics is if they're created to be compostable, so for example a common one would be PLA, um, that would impact in the recycling stream because it's a completely different material but the systems aren't really set up to remove it from the system so it can then end up degrading the recycling stream rather than allowing it to still maintain that same level of quality. Um, the plant-based material that we use is made from sugarcane or the byproduct of sugarcane so it's a molasses and that molasses is then basically refined in a similar process to oil to be made into PET so it's still the same product and still fully recyclable. Great answer as well as a great question and there's another one at the front here sorry uh, Tom. Uh, I'm Tom from Lean Path. Um, coming away from the subject of bottles for just a second one of our customers has um, has started taking all of their trim waste, their veg trim waste, and dehydrating it and powdering it and using that then to bulk up sauces and soups and the like. So that's a really good circular approach to what would normally be a wasted um, ingredient and a nicely closed loop. I was wondering if you at Innocent have explored any similar approaches with regard to some of the ingredients you use uh, in your products. 
Yeah, great question. So the, the structure of our supply chain is such that we don't buy, so we don't buy oranges, for example, we buy orange juice. Um, so what I do know is that actually for the majority of our ingredients, so orange is a good example, oranges are a really valuable material that can be made into loads of different things. So for example, um, in the orange juice industry, they will take the peel and they will make that in, they will kind of reduce it down, as you're saying, um, make it into things like essential oils, um, and they'll sell off lots of different things. They won't just be selling orange juice. Um, so that, for that in that section of our supply chain, we're not actually really in control of it, though we do have some really great case studies of what our suppliers are doing. Um, and we spend a lot of time talking and engaging with them around making sure that they are the kind of partner that does that, because we spend a lot of time in terms of suppliers and risk assessing and making sure that they're the right kind of fit for us here at Innocent. Um, and then I guess there's some waste that we have in our supply chain, which would be more things like if we're not going to sell a product or it's going to go short dated. And that's where we work with other charities or um, redistribution charities to make sure that we are getting those products to humans. So we have a 100% target on redistribution of any finished goods waste. So anything that would otherwise just it's already in a bottle, it's ready to go. Um, and actually, we're, someone in our supply chain leads that piece of work and we're, we've hit that target for the last this for the whole of this year. We've hit 100% redistribution of products. So in answer to your question, we're not really involved, but there are some great case studies. I'd be happy to pull some out for you if you like. Yeah, similarly, <laughs> oranges are a big one for us and we've got some really good ideas around mm. that, so we can catch Yeah, up. great. Thank you very much. Okay, um, round of applause. Thank you very much, Katie. We'll need both those, I think, in a minute. <laughs> um, right, so next we're on to our, our final panel. Um, so we've now got, uh, coming up, we've got Lucy Frankel from Vegware. Uh, we've got Tom Mansell from Lean Path, who just asked that question. Did I say your name correctly? More or less. Mansell. 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 Fair enough. Um, not, not, not Nigel, the moustache has gone. Uh, and Dawn Faulkner from Essential Cuisine as well. So come on up, Dawn. If you'd like to perch on the, the stools. Last time we did this here, we had stools on a stage that wasn't very wide. And it was, it was properly interesting to see how little uh, the speakers moved on the chairs. Um, today, they might move a little bit more because they're not going to fall off the stage. Um, but uh, anyway, here we are. Right, so um, this panel is looking at um, uh, infrastructure, or lack of, uh, as the, the question um, suggests to me, uh, and uh, the challenges it's, it's presenting and how we can work together as an industry uh, to strive towards reduction, reuse, and circularity. So, uh, again, same as last time, if you don't mind, just a, a few opening thoughts, just a minute or so um, for the audience, and then we'll open up for questions as well um, on this and have a similar discussion as we did last, last panel. So should we start this end then, Tom? Okay. Thank you. Well, um, I think you can look at infrastructure in terms of uh, you know, national infrastructure or um, you know, company or enterprise infrastructure as well. So um, you know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a political animal. I work with a lot of, uh, a lot of companies of various shapes and sizes. And um, I think there are, some, there are some principles to embed a circular approach to food in those companies that kind of, um, and I was thinking about this a bit earlier, and uh, it's, all, it's all about closing loops within production systems. And so the smaller the loop, the more efficient the system. 
And um, I was mapping this to, to, to four principles to the circular economy, um, which I took away from um, a previous life when I was working at RAP. And, and the first one of this is, you know, that waste equals food. Um, and obviously for, you know, for, for, for food service companies, that's a sort of duh. But you should make it a central tenet of your, um, of your catering philosophy that, you know, waste can be food. And with particular reference to some of those materials that were being thrown away, uh, the, you know, the, the, the veg trim being turned into uh, sauces to bulk up soups. Um, the second one is building resilience through diversity. And I think that is one that definitely applies at both national and regional level. And having that, uh, that diversity, which is all about collaboration across different departments. And again, thinking, um, thinking about businesses as a, um, as a, as a complex um, array of different players and stakeholders, uh, celebrating that diversity and having different players working much more closely together is a, um, is a key element. Um, a fourth one was using energy from renewable sources. Well, that doesn't necessarily map to, um, to food service, but I think from a, um, from a sustainable and locally sourced and resilient food um, perspective, that's definitely one. You know, we see, for instance, um, our, our chefs at Sodexo um, buying much more regional and locally sourced foods, which may be more expensive but they, are, um, they last longer and they, uh, they yield much better ingredients, much better qualities. The last one was thinking in, in, in systems, which is about many actors working together to create effective flows of material. And so that's really about imagining, reimagining what we've quite often come across in kitchens as very established uh, behaviors. And it's shifting those established behaviors that quite often leads the results there. Um, so those are my kind of opening thoughts on that. Thanks, Tom. Lucy. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to reflect on the, the question, which is looking at the lack of infrastructure and um, the challenges. So obviously, my favorite subject is compostable disposables. Um, the lack of infrastructure is a huge topic of debate. So there are around 50 in-vessel composting facilities in the UK. Um, and we've built up a whole network where we work together with the waste sector, um, both the facilities and collectors as well. So um, the challenges um, presented by being uh, a niche but growing material is that essentially we've had to be proactive. So we've had to create those networks ourselves. Um, so since 2012, we've had our own um, team in-house. There's now five of us who just focus solely on setting up waste uh, routes, waste relationships. Um, and so we're now at um, having started at 2% of UK postcodes where there was a trade collection for used vegware. We're now at 38%, which is obviously a long way from 100, but um, we're proud of the, <laughs> the progress that we've It's made. almost as far from two, so yeah. <laughs> it's a long way from <laughs> two. Um, and really, I think... Um, there's there's definitely gaps in the UK, so there's loads of regions that we do cover, but there certainly are gaps. I think the real challenge, though, is are we good enough for our waste to go into those facilities? Um, I've got a, a good friend in the composting sector who always tells me, crap in, crap out. 
And uh, I'm afraid that's horribly true. It's all about source segregation. It's all about quality. Peter was talking about quality as well. Um, so yes, there are composting facilities, but it's, it's forcing us to really focus on the quality contamination issues. It's no good to be lulled into the feeling of, oh, it's fine for DMR to be 20 to 30% contamination. It's, you know, I hear stories about um, quick service restaurants that do a, a recycling trial with two bins, each of them 50% contaminated. This isn't okay anymore. So. Um, working with composting facilities and compostable disposables, it's forcing people into that behaviour change and it's forcing us into source segregation um, because now obviously everyone understands that it's all about quality and that recycling, re genuine reprocessing is only going to happen with quality materials. Um, so I think that's the reality of it. Great. And Dawn? Hi, um, I'm Dawn Faulkner from a company um, called Essential Cuisine, which is a small manufacturing company in the UK. Um, we're beginning to tackle this by looking and working really closely with our supply chain and suppliers. So we're beginning to do workshops and getting all our suppliers into the business and asking them, you know, how can you help us reduce our waste? Um, so last week we were working really closely with a, a group of people um, looking all the way from how do we um, reduce the waste from the materials that come into the site all the way through to the materials obviously that she the chef uses um, at the end. Um, we were looking at, from a chef's point of view, the waste from preparation all the way through to the meal served and the waste going into the bin at the end of the, um, the day. Um, and we're finding that working really closely with them, we can really find some great solutions um, in terms of, you know, one of the areas that we are feeling that people are really, really struggling with is understanding CO2 emissions and how do they work out their CO2 emissions. And I feel that, you know, as a, as a country, we really need to kind of come together and understand how we're going to tackle this so that we're all working from the same um, area. Thank you very much. Um, so I think just one of the points you were raising there, Lucy, you were raising was around uh, the, the, the difficulty of getting access to, to composting facilities for, for your materials. So just tell us the challenges around that and, um, you know, where you've got to, I suppose, with that. Sure. So, um it's not a secret where composting facilities are because they're on Google Maps and they're on the government's list. Um, but the, the secret to what we've been able to do is actually putting the effort in. So um, there's obviously um, the whole Blue Planet effect. Everyone's got very excited about alternatives to, to trad plastics. And there's a lot of people started to um, sell compostable materials, um, but without any sort of engagement, without any link up with the waste sector. Um, so where we have had a lot of successes, it's, it's all the boring stuff, it's all the compliance, it's all the certification. So um, in terms of getting certification, you know, it's 14,000 euros per material or group of products to get the lab testing done. That's the initial phase, then you have to pay on top of that to get your independent certification. Um, so we spend, you know, we've got over 350 products. It's an expensive thing. Um, so there's that, there's the uh, food safety certification, so the, all that stuff. But then there's uh, the fact that we employ people full time to go and 
run trials, visit waste facilities, do troubleshooting. That's the side of the stuff for the waste sector. Um, and so because of that, there's 27 um, organics recycling facilities in the UK that accept vegware products. Um, and we're asked all the time, oh, who are they then? And um, I'm not going to tell you, I'm afraid, because um, we don't want to risk those relationships. We don't want um, to have opened those relationships to have these specific facilities except vegware products that they have trialed, they trust, they know that we run all of the engagement, we make bin signage, we do all the minimization of contamination stuff at the client sites as well. So they know the quality is going to be there, but then to have any compostable item that may or may not be compostable, it may be an oxo-degradable uh, plastic, um, and to have no sort of waste support engagement around it, that's going to open up a risk to contamination for those yeah, facilities. I, I agree with that, and I mean, that's why I'm not, uh, as you know, I'm not a massive fan of, um, of promoting um, uh, biodegradable plastics, because, unless they're in a controlled, confined environment, because, you know, if we let, if we let that stuff loose on the general public, and they... You know, they're told it confidently it will be composted. They start putting things in different places and you lose, you lose control as a composter. You lose control of the quality of the input material. And because of, you know, the scale and the speed and the complexity of some of these things, the assumption you have to make is it might be plastic, not biodegradable. And so that is a real challenge, I, I feel, um, of where, where the line is in terms of when and, and how you use biodegradable plastics that are certified. So um, I'd really recommend everyone to um, look at the BBIA's website. So this is the Bio-Based and Biodegradable Industries Association. And um, together we prepared a, a policy document for the recent DEFRA Waste and Resources Strategy. There's loads of really useful um, facts in there, all linked and referenced. But one of the big things is that we believe that compostable materials are only suitable to replace 5 to 8% of plastic packaging. So, vegware does not want to make a clear bottle that is compostable. We don't see the point because we know what everyone's doing in terms of um, uh, PET and other forms of uh, trad plastics, um, mechanical recycling. We're not getting involved. Similarly, um, on my Facebook feed, people are selling um, compostable bio bags for general waste use in case people want to go plastic free in inverted commas and <laughs> I think that is absolutely well I find it very upsetting personally as a as a packaging geek because we have to be very careful about where compostable materials are useful and where they're actually going to hinder things um, so I'd also like to just um, clear up one thing is that um, there's plant-based materials and there's compostable materials you can have a compostable material that is derived from plants or derived from oil. Similarly, you can have a plant-based material that is either compostable or not. So we have to be very specific about which are the feedstocks and which are the properties we're talking about. Um, and yeah, there's so many different applications and you have to be very, very clear on what, what do you like about that product and why. What do you we, do won't get in, we won't get into is um, PET from, from a chemistry set recycled better than our pet today um, because that's a whole nother they're all having an argument about that it's brilliant um, what I wanted to ask uh, you about um, was um, in terms of data because we were we were talking weren't we about you know infrastructure and digital infrastructure and using that data 
better as a way of preventing um, waste and preventing those mistakes being made. So just touch on that very briefly, Tom. Well, you, there's, a, there's a number of ways, obviously, that you can use your, your waste data to start to um, you know, reduce your food waste. You can do that through uh, better forecasting. You can do it through amending your production sheets. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can take that data and you can say, right, well, based on the last four or five events, that we've had, we have, uh, you know, we've overproduced by 20, 30 percent. We're going to, we're going to cut back on that, and um, so you know, month on month, we are cutting our banqueting waste by 10, 15, 20, 30 percent. You know, whatever it happens to be, and taking that data and using it to, um, you know, to, to to create value where kind of none existed before. So one of our chefs, for instance, um, took his um, his his breakfast waste. Uh, he, he, he put it through the Lean Path Tracker and he realized that he was throwing away a lot of his um, turkey and, uh, and ham. And basically, no one was eating it. So he thought, I'm just going to haul that out and I'm going to replace it with smoked salmon, which is, uh, you know, the punters loved. And he, any that was left over, he could then uh, whiz that up into a paste and serve it up at tea. So he's basically mm -hmm. used that data to eliminate waste from his, his uh, operation, but he's also created you know, added value and customer delight. Um, so there's a kind of, there's an information value there. There's, there's, a, there's, there's obviously the sourcing value, which is one of the cornerstones of, uh, of, of circular economy. There's, there's information value, which is, um, you know, I'm, I'm wasting this particular item and it's costing me. <clears throat> there's environmental value, so he's, he's cutting down on the waste. And there's also customer value, so they're coming back to him now and they're saying, well, we love this. We've eliminated this waste item from our um, from our uh, buffet, and we've replaced it with something that sells really well and, and, and is low waste. So, you know, using that data, and and and, and I guess you know, preventing food waste is is pre-circular. So, if you know, the best waste is the waste that doesn't get generated. At oh, uh, I'm all in in favour of a much smaller circle, uh, for sure. And Dawn, I'm going to come to you in a second and ask about reusables, refillables, and returnables in a, in a second. Let's go to the audience though first. Um, Questions from the audience. Very keen hand came up over there. We've we got a microphone. Charlie, run. <laughs> Who you are and why you're here would be great. Uh, hello. Hi, panel. I'm James. I'm from Selfridges. Um, quick question for the panel. Um, we do quite a lot at Selfridges looking into new ways of working and trying to recycle. Um, and a couple of things become apparent. Um, I just wonder what your views were. Um, with so many different competing methods of, of, of going green, going plastic free, be it recycling or be it composting, uh, and then actually having access to these items in the first place can be cost prohibitive for some smaller operators. Um, it seems that there needs to be some sort of national level um, support in terms of education, both for retailers and the public, in how to recycle properly, how to get access to these materials in the first place, and how do we drive the cost down so it's available not just for people like us who can afford to be early adopters? Great question. Any advice and guidance? Lucy's the packaging Sounds like it's more, <laughs> more my question. Um, so from our perspective, um, you know, our materials are, are a niche material um, and we operate, we really focus on food service, on contract caterers and we have focused 
um, a lot less on, on retail precisely because we know the challenges if um, our materials go to a householder into the local authority waste routes we have you know we're not in retail so we haven't focused on those waste routes so I'm very aware of those challenges um, and I'm also aware that not everything gets genuinely re reprocessed a lot of waste does get incinerated um, and so even if uh, a plant-based material uh, goes to incineration, at least there are still benefits there because it still has a good calorific value. It produces more heat than newspaper, wood or food waste and it has um, lower uh, volatile gases and it has very little residue. So there are benefits of plant-based materials even if they go to incineration. They're inert in landfill as well. Um, but I completely hear the, the frustrations in terms of the lack of national um, coherence. Um, we are very much hoping that um, over the coming years, DEFRA has not included compostable packaging as one of the core um, materials for a consistent household collection um, in what they've just published recently for their direction for the waste and resources strategy. Um, I'm hoping that as um, in, in the next few years that will be reviewed and maybe it'll be included. Um, we are seeing a huge uh, growth in our own um, collection infrastructure so you know what was unthinkable in the past we now have people collecting in, in, in London as well as all sorts of other places so we're very excited about that and um, hope that that'll be there'll be room within the way they calculate uh, what is deemed recyclable or not for these materials to be included at a later, later date. I think for smaller operators, smaller businesses, part of your question there, getting information um, certainly the footprint, lots of information there, and wrap as well I'd say probably. Good places to go to understand a bit of the, the nuances, a bit of the background on what those choices might look like for a, for a smaller business, smaller than a Selfridges anyway. Um, okay, uh, another question at the back, yeah? Come on Charlie. Hi, I'm Aicha, I'm CEO from Solublu. Uh, I have a question to Lucy. So um, on, on your website and a lot of um, uh, bioplastic companies' websites, um, there's a lot of terms used like uh, biodegradable or compostable, whereas you know, um, the term compostable, general public understands is like, you know, you can put a you know, bioplastic cup in your home garden and it will biodegrade by nature, or you know, if it's in the ocean, it will biodegrade. But in, uh, the fact is it doesn't biodegrade, so it's... Um, industrial composting is different than uh, regular composting. So um, I was wondering if you, you know, if you if you thought about these issues because um, the um, the way that you communicate on your website is just only using the the term compostable rather than industrial compostable, um, and I think it is also like um, your responsibility to to explain this to the end user. Okay, so that was the standards and other things you were talking about, I guess, just now. Well, it's, it's really about terminology. So um, every page of our catalogue says um, commercially compostable with a hyperlink to our composting FAQ. We as a company don't use the word biodegradable. So this is a, a term that is very confusing. Even, to be quite frank, rap, get it wrong, and I... Um, feel very frustrated by the guidance that they put out that is actually just incorrect. So um, there 
is a standard, there's a legal definition for the word compostable, and that is to do with it being suitable for industrial composting. Um, and home compostable, you need to specify the word home on the front if it is suitable for domestic um, compost bins in a garden. Um, and really, we need to bring everyone with us. You know, nobody was that engaged in packaging and materials until a few years ago. So it's an education process. Um, and uh, in terms of the word recyclable or recycling, nobody would assume that that means that you can sit at your kitchen table mushing up newspapers. You always assume that that's an industrial process. So we need to bring everyone into that mindset, the same for the word composting, because this is a legal definition. Yeah, Thank um, you. Okay. My, um, my other question, sorry. Uh, okay, um, briefly. Sorry. Um, uh, when the bio, you know, uh, bioplastic goes to the um, composting facilities, they also, like, um, the, the feedback we got is that they lowered the quality of soil. Do you, do you get any feedback from the composting facilities, facilities about that issue? Because the you know, farmers are you know, complaining about paper and bioplastic going into the soil and lowering the quality of soil. And I was wondering if you get any feedback from the composting facilities about that issue. Thank you. So the most widespread experience of the organics recycling sector and bioplastics is to do with the compostable liners that food waste goes in. So that's the most widespread experience. Um, ours are certified home compostable, industrial compostable and soil biodegradable. So um, if through the process there is still some scraps of that material left over, then it can still um, biodegrade correctly within the soil. Um, obviously, we have to make sure that our facility, oops, uh, our, the organics recycling sector are happy with our products and they do break down sufficiently. So obviously, we invest in certification, but that's the, that's the base. Um, we then also run real life trials, so um, you can look at the um, REA Org, which is the Organics Recycling Association, they had a, a trial report that they wrote up about a trial at Biogen's IVC, um, and they concluded that it was all um, sufficiently broken down. Um, there was no change to the process. It was exactly the same length of time it would normally be. So I completely understand um, concerns. Of course, anyone running a business which is composting it has to be the right feedstock they have to have the right quality output and that's something we take very seriously and that's why precisely we, we put all this effort into that and um, investment as well okay so um there's one more question there in a second dawn just to come to you um past the microphone which is permission to speak um just for a one second coming to you because i mentioned about um returnables reusables refillables and you because you're you're more providing in in bulk aren't you um, to, to caterers, so you, you said you've been looking at that. Yeah, so what we've been looking at really is um, different options because we do large catering size um, plastic um, tubs and so we're looking at what the different options are. So biodegradable pouches, um, compostable pouches, so that when a chef uses our product they're not um, throwing away um, that pot that may have a plastic liner inside, a plastic tub, then a paper label on the outside, which they have to clean and wash so that it can be recycled, which is a major issue. Um, so we've also got um, shelf life um, tests going on with this type of packaging. I think some of the issues that we've got is um, the shelf life for our products because they're ambient. So, you know, will uh, biodegradable um, packaging um, retain our product for 12 months 
Um, you know, so, so some of these issues um, are something that we're really quite concerned about. And reverse logistics as well, and thinking about re reusable containers. Is that something else you've been looking into? Um, well, currently our pots are kind of reusable. Chefs are using them to add hot soapy water. They're using them as a colander, so they're putting holes in them. The issue is, are they being recycled? And we don't think they are, because they've got so many different materials, even though it's a fully... Um, a 100% um, recyclable plastic pot. Um, there just you know, aren't the chefs out there or the caterers that can clean these out so that they're recycled. And we haven't got the infrastructure in place so that these pots can be recycled. And how do you so, think that, that could be solved then? What's the, what's the magic you know, um, change that could happen to make, to make that happen? Well, in terms of infrastructure, we definitely need more recycling resource. Um, Obviously, there's a, a real lack of um, uh, caterers in the industry. Um, so, yeah, resource is a real issue, especially with the B word. Obviously, people are going back um, to Europe. Um, so, yeah, it is a real issue for us. Where do we go? What type of pack format do we, we use? Do we use cardboard? Has that got a better CO2? Um, carbon footprint? You know, all these are questions that we're currently looking at. And we are in the really early stages of looking into this. Okay. So maybe this time next year we can talk about it again. Yeah. Uh, there was a question in the middle here. Is there a, you've got a microphone, yep. Uh, Peter Bates, PJB Associates. Um, it's uh, a question for, uh, to Lucy again. Um, I'm finding it very confusing from what you're saying and what Vegware is saying uh, in terms of the messages that are coming out. I mean, let me give you a real practical example. On our local market, we have a Samosa man and he's selling his products with using vegware uh, as the container. But sounds a great idea. You know, he's doing the right thing uh, as far as he's concerned, or he thinks he's doing the right thing. Further investigation is uh, it, it'll be great if the fish and chip shops and the kebab uh, man could actually use the vegware as well. But what do we discover? It's contamination in the green bin because uh, it's not, as far as chemistry is concerned, that's contamination. The, uh, the, is, is, the cycle is, is not, uh, you know, it's 12 weeks for yours, but it's eight weeks in terms of uh, going to Amy to, uh, in our case, to do it. It's contamination in our blue bin, which is the dry recycling. So, in fact, he's actually making the situation worse uh, by actually thinking he's doing the right thing. How, what do you then suggest to him? You, you're, you, you seem to be saying uh, today that in fact we, we don't want, we're not interested in a small retailer because of the problems which I've just illustrated now. You're more interested in the larger retailer or, or those who maybe actually have big events. So there's confusing messages. What are you really wanting to say and what shall I go back on Saturday and actually say to my Samosa man? <laughs> So, um, quite a big question there. Um, in terms of where we focus, we, we see the point of uh, the compostable materials is where food contamination stops conventional materials being able to be recycled mechanically. So, I don't know what the alternative uh, conventional thing uh, that your Samosa man would be using, but does that genuinely have a reprocessing option or not? Um, if you look at the Confederation of Paper Industries report from six months ago or so, there was a report, they say that they really want to limit the amount of uh, plastic of any polymer within any fibre item. Um, so they want to limit it to, I think it's um, absolute maximum 5% 
but ideally under 3% by weight. They don't want any sort of food contamination, so very, very light staining is acceptable, but anything smooshy or 3D, that's bad news for paper mills. So, you know, if, if your uh, Samosa man is going to be using disposables, it doesn't sound like there's actually any genuine reprocessing options for conventional materials because of this mix of fibre plus plastic plus food contamination. So probably the answer is still going to be either reusables or incineration. Um, and on-street recycling in a very open um, context like what you're describing, it's really, really hard work to get the source segregation, to get the quality. Even for a Coke can, it, on street bins, it's really, really hard to get the quality for even really well-recognised materials that you know, could go very successfully in other uh, better-managed contexts for DMR. So it's a huge nightmare, is what I'm trying to say, but um, Sorry. <laughs> If you like renewable materials, then there's the bonus. You know, you're still choosing plant-based materials, the same as Innocent are doing. So there's still people who like that as a concept, and that's, that's their choice. But in terms of the waste, it's very challenging for any material in a market where there's lots of different materials there. Thank you. Uh, your Samosa man, this guy, is famous now. Um, I still haven't got the answer. No, 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 hang on, I'm going to help. Do you eat them? while you stood there talking to your Samosa man, or did you take them home? Oh, the right. I asked him that question. Yeah. The majority of the said, well, why don't you actually start to collect them together, and then we'll, we'll come up with some form of community composting solutions. Uh, and basically he said, he asked that question to, to his customers, and in fact, most of them take them home anyway. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apologise to Lucy, and I'm going to say, do away with all of it, and ask his customers to bring their own container. Great. So that's the message back to him on Saturday. And whereabouts, what council? Uh, it's, uh, well, it, it's uh, Cambridgeshire. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we do struggle. I work with Amy, and, yeah, six to seven weeks there, you're right. Yeah. We struggle with, um, with that, which is why I said what I said. Uh, and there is a proposal for an EFW, so there you go. Anyway, um, right, we are going to stop now, and I'm going to say, ask you to thank the panel in the usual way. Uh, and the great thing is the wine, the glasses are half full, at very least half full, over there. And there's some other drinks as well, I'm sure. Um, just very briefly, I think what's interesting, one third of workers in a survey that was done by Metro Rod, I think, um, said uh, that they feel no responsibility to behave, behave in an eco-friendly way at work, which I thought was quite interesting. So we're all sort of saying these things at home, and maybe doing them at home, and maybe we're not when we get to work, maybe we're not doing them at, in a work environment. I think we're all in a, a privileged position where our jobs actually are to make those, those differences. So maybe, maybe we need to think about uh, co-workers and the businesses we work with. But half of businesses are aiming to be carbon neutral by 2030. So there's a huge, huge job ahead of us to get to carbon neutrality uh, in the next 10 years um, and bring our workforce more, you know, more broad than this room, our workforce with us. So if there's one thing I'd urge you to do tomorrow when you go back to work or later this afternoon if you're on a long one, um, is, is think about what you can genuinely do to challenge that status quo and make those changes, whether it's around making that circular economy smaller or putting a few more wedges into the circle to make it more of a circle. So, uh, and the, the very last thing, um, is to thank uh, Innocent 
for hosting us today uh, and also obviously Footprint for putting the event on and for you uh, coming along. So give everyone a round of applause. Well done.